Behind every great beer is an even better story. Welcome to the Beer Healer Interviews. ago, Will Tatchell, head brewer and owner of Van Diemen Brewing, was on his way to take up his dream job as a brewer for Guinness in Ireland. He never actually got to fulfil that dream though, as while in transit he got the bad news via email that there was no longer a job for him. Determined to follow his dream, he continued on to the UK and his perseverance paid off, landing a job in the Milton Brewery in Cambridge. And so began his love affair with British Ales. In 2006, he came back home to set up his brewery in Evandale, Tasmania, releasing his first brew in 2009. Welcome to the Beer Healer Interviews, Will Tatchell. Lukey, thank you very much for having me as a guinea pig at night. Uh, thanks, mate. I know you've had a massive day in the brew house today, so I appreciate you taking this time after dinner to have a chat. Not a problem at all, mate. I hope you've got a beer with you, mate. I do. I've got one of our uh, bone of mouth IPAs I'm just sipping on, so it'll serve us nicely over the course of the next uh, whatever period of time we take. Very nice. I'll just pour mine here. You can probably hear that on the microphone. What are you drinking? Uh, so at the moment, mate, I am experimenting with a – I'm trying to create a summer ale to take down to the shack uh, this summer, which is sort of around the 35 to 4% mark and pretty easy drinking, so I don't have to take those nasty little yellow cans down with me. Uh, mm-hmm. So at the moment, this one here is a Citra Smash beer that's made with Pilsner. Um, this one's sort of high fours at the moment, so just just experimenting uh, with with the taste of it all. How do you have it? Sounds good. It's not too bad. Not too bad. Got a bit of work to do, but every day's a school day in the brew shed for me. You know that. Uh, Isn't it Green Shed Brewing? Yeah, it is, or it was, but at the moment I'm just just happy to be brewing. I've I've got too many other beer healer things going on to worry about branding a home brew shed. Fair call. Now, mate, they don't want to hear about me and my home brewing. The podcast listeners, and there's going to be thousands of them, want to hear about you. So, mate, you've come a hell of a long way since you started uh, the brewery. I think back then you said there was only about 50 breweries. Is that right? Oh, at a, at, a, at a guess. I've never actually done the numbers myself, but I, we wouldn't be too far off, I don't reckon. And and back when you started back then, I, craft beer, in inverted commas, was, was still pretty small and dominated by some huge names, which may or may not be questionable as to whether they are craft beer, the likes of Coopers, Little Creatures, Matilda Bay and James Squire, you know, heavily. No, I, don't, I, don't th- I don't think it was even craft beer back then. I think it was micro-brewed, micro-brewed. And, um, or, or boutique. Oh, yeah, boutique I think was a word they used to use, yeah. yeah. But, you know, big yeah. resources with some of those, and I, I guess um, it was a pretty hard slog to begin with, yeah? Uh, it was, and it's, it still is, is the honest answer. Um, if anything, it was potentially um, a little easier back um, almost 10 years ago with when we didn't have the plethora of, <laughs> um, of breweries and great quality beers on the, on the shelves. What we do now was um, getting, a, getting a foot in the door in venues and stuff was potentially a little easier. It was maybe more than just one tap for 10 breweries to fight over in each pub, eh? Yeah, yeah, I think it was... Um, it was sort of a the uh, the cusp of the wave was just beginning um, compared to where we are now. So it was uh, yeah. I mean, we didn't find it too difficult, at least initially, to um, to get our foot in the door and, and be poured in a few places, at least locally. 
um, whereas now it's it's uh, definitely far more competitive and and you uh, you sort of have to play a strategic game a little bit. A gutsy move to uh, to follow your passion, and I, and I tip my hat to you for doing it because uh, you know not too many people have the balls to sort of put it all on the line to to start something like a brewery. I think I, it may have been a joke, but I'm sure I remember you saying something like that you didn't pay yourself for the first you know six years or something like that. Was it really that oh, tough? I think you can extend it out to the I haven't paid myself yet. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, it's a, it's it's like any brewer will tell you or any uh, business owner. It's if you if you're fortunate to do something that you're passionate about, um, it, it's a whole lot easier. I mean, I, I still don't uh, technically turn up to work every day. I I'm fortunate to be doing something that I love and uh, and I'm passionate about, and it it just so happens that we that we have created a business around it and. Um, have been doing that for a period of time. So it's, um, I mean, the rewards are potentially not necessarily as financially rewarding as what other positions might be, but um, job satisfaction is um, is just about as high as it can get. And now you've got three boys to train up into the into the art of craft brewing. Do you reckon they'll follow in your footsteps? Uh, I don't know. I, I certainly won't push them that way. If it's if it's something that they want to do, they're, they're probably three of the most beer educated children <laughs> um, going going around. They um, they certainly understand um, oh, ingredients, styles, um, process, uh, and things. So I mean, if one of them wants to, one of them, two of them, three of them want to do anything with beer, then then good on them. Hopefully there's a cricketer or a golfer and a oh, footballer involved. First, so. Yeah, I'd love a golfer. How good would that be? So much money in golf. <laughs> exactly. Is your dad still helping out in the brewery? Uh, yeah, he does. He was helping us um, quite extensively today. So good on your dad. He pretty, much, yeah, he pretty much does a lot of the deliveries locally for us. Oh, yeah. Um, otherwise, I get caught talking for a majority of the time. And then he'll, you do love a chat. He'll help. Yeah, he, he'll... Um, He'll often flick in for a packaging run, or um, take the spent grain away to the to the cattle or the sheep, or unload a truck for us, or um, all those bits and pieces things that need to be done that um, that he's capable of doing. But other than that, he's he's a lot of the time looking after the farm. Oh, that's fantastic. Now, look in this whole beer healer interviews thing, I want to tell stories about about what's going on in the in the craft beer scene and. The reason why I want to speak to you initially because I think you've got a great story to tell. If we, if we fast forward, you know, six, seven, eight years or whatever it was from when you started, you really consciously decided to make a change in the direction of your brewery, didn't you? Yeah, we did. We sort of um, – our focus sort of shifted to a, to a holistic on-farm approach. Um, I mean, that was, that was arguably driven by – um, the fact that we are a farm-based brewery, so we have we have the capability of of producing um, the agricultural products, and and for me, beer is purely a, an agricultural product. Um, we use four core ingredients most of the time, and and they are extensively agriculturally linked. Um, uh, added to the fact that um, as my palate matured and bits and pieces, I started to. To drink more and more of the farmhouse ales, sour beer, um, sort of barrel aged stuff, which which really started to get my creative juices going as a brewer. So, I think both of those both of those influences um, sort of worked hand in hand to get us to the point that we're at now. And what was your inspiration? I know you've had a, a brewer's crush on uh, Jester King over in Texas. Was there someone like that that sort of thought I could do this home at home in Tassie? Uh 
I'm not that – I don't think so is, is, is probably the answer. I think they provided um, – breweries such as Jester King um, sort of provided impetus or, or, or confidence that others were doing it. I don't – I'm not big on um, sort of milestone components as in – or epiphany beers or epiphany moments or things. I think it's um, – I think for me having grown up on a farm and understood um, that – agricultural nature of of uh, where beer comes from and and then obviously going into the brewing component uh, I think I've essentially come full circle um, having grown up on the farm um, done a, a, a agricultural science degree at uni gone away to brewing um, started up pandemic and now to be sort of back on the farm and and um, growing beer in the ground or farming beer um, from its from its roots and in the soil all the way through to to the brewing component, um, I think it's it's more of that rewarding full circle component. Um, not to go not to get too philosophical <laughs> or deep, um, but no, I don't. I'm not sure if there were there were particular breweries or, or brewers that um, sort of I, I set on a path to say right, that's what I'm going to emulate. But making this change in direction, I, I'm assuming it wasn't a cheap exercise. You know, the things that I've seen that you sort of implement with your solar panels, you plant your own crops, you farm them, you're going to be mulching the grain eventually, you know, lots of infrastructure. I'm tipping that would have been a pretty interesting uh, dinner discussion with your lovely wife, Kaylee. sort of like, so honey, I want to change a couple of things and it's going to cost us a few bucks. How did that go? Well, as as any farmer will tell you, things don't happen overnight, so it's a um it's a slow burn um when you're making decisions and i mean mum and dad were, have been fantastic in supporting the direction that um that we've taken the farm i mean we got rid of cattle two and a half years ago to free up some land oh, wow. for um cereal production and stuff so um that was a, that was a big maneuver for us to to get rid of those and and sort of start to focus on this and and hopefully it's it's going to pay dividends or it is at the moment at least on the on the production front but um, I think it's I'm very much an individual that if you're going to do something do it properly don't half ass things so we we sort of made that call on the on the farm and the brewery four and a half years ago or so and um, we sort of set out a, a bit of a strategic plan and. And had it written down on paper about what what we needed to do in order to to achieve these things, and it was simply a case of putting one foot in front of the other. And and as I said, things don't happen overnight on the farm, so it was about a a, um, a smart manoeuvre about not necessarily us getting bigger, but, but getting smarter. So nine ten years ago, when we when we sort of started our core range and things, we we sort of had to offer a broad array of stylistic beers and. They've sort of stuck around for this period of time, whereas now with the plethora of breweries and the and the offerings of beer that are that are on the market, um, we can probably start to drill down and and nail um, what our niche is and, and what we actually want to offer. So this is where um, the estate ales or some or a bit more barrel aged stuff or even uh, some of the spontaneous beers that we've got and uh, and and working with the farm hand in hand. Um, becomes a little bit more critical and a little more, bit more important for us and, and, and valuable. It's like you're reading my mind. You know, your mention of your estate ale just rolls beautifully into my next question. You know, um, you've got the, the estate ales and the, the limited release wild ales as well going on. And how has the beer drinking public reacted to them? Because they're 
they're a more advanced beer style and flavor than maybe what some some drinkers would be used to drinking. I think um, our barrel aged stuff. Um, most people tend to, or most consumers understand um, the nature of barrel aging and, and what it's involved with, and sort of the times and um, products that that come out of it. Um, some of the sour beers uh, where we're where we're sort of aging them on fruit and bits and pieces are, are a little bit harder to to um, sort of describe or to to pigeonhole stylistically, so that they become a little difficult in, to explain in a single sentence. Um, the estate ales are a, are another um, they're difficult to um, sort of encapsulate for for such a simple concept of of growing everything or sourcing everything. Um, from within or on the brewery farm, um, we found that consumers don't can't quite grasp it. Um, it's almost uh, it's almost that we're probably potentially slightly ahead of the curve. Wow. Um, I say that lightly, um, but yeah, we found it quite difficult to get people to get their head around it. Um, that that one we're able to do it, and two that we actually are doing it. Yeah, I find that interesting because you know. Oh, these days you talk about food miles and all those sort of things with, you know, wanting to eat produce from your local area and that sort of thing, which is exactly what you're doing with these beers. It's just it's just beer miles and I think it's it's about 400 metres, is it, for some of the uh, uh, stadiums? Well, the, the, yeah, Max and Edward, the first two, four, 435 metres was the furthest in ingredient amazing. For, for each of those beers. Now, and I mean, when I say that people are, are struggling to get their head around it, I think most people can understand an individual ingredient, uh, ingredient. So whether that's a, a barley grown on the farm, or some hops, or um, even even the water that we source from um, on farm springs. But probably the the more critical driver and the and the piece that of the puzzle that was most difficult for us to achieve was the yeast component. Um, so we sort of went through two and a half years worth of. Um, or we captured from a spontaneous uh, pitch and then isolated out uh, over a hundred different yeast uh, strains, and then from there went through quite um, uh, quite thorough um, sensory analysis in order to uh, to land where we are now. With and that's the Everton yeast, isn't it? That's a, yeah, that's a, our house yeast that we that we've dubbed dubbed Everton. Um, and that's a that's a blend of two sack strains that we got out of that spontaneous. Um, pitch. So I think that that's probably the the piece of the puzzle that um, one has been most difficult for us to to achieve, and and thankfully we've done that. But two for for consumers to probably still um, assume that we're throwing on a, a lab cultured yeast onto it. It's um, for anybody that's seen the beers, they're they're beautifully presented in the the green bottles with uh, you know champagne style cork and that sort of thing. You know, in a time when everyone is canning these beer their beers, you know, you're coming out with these beautiful looking bottles, and uh, we've spared no expense here tonight at Beer Healer just to. Give you this little bit of music just in tribute to you. One of these kids is doing his own thing. Now it's time to play our game. It's time to play our game. I hope you paid uh, your rights for that. <laughs> I don't know. It's some dodgy YouTube grab. But, but really, like, it does feel like that, that you're, you're out on your own putting this extra effort into your, your branding and your bottling and your presentation when it seems to be the thing these days that everybody's just slapping their beers into a can and putting a – a quick label on a on a generic can. Why why would you go to that extra effort? Because it's obviously expensive. Yeah, it's um, it's any business any business owner will tell you it's it's about staying ahead of the curve, and particularly in beer when it's um, 
competitive. I mean, the marketing game in beer is significant, and every every one of us is trying to come up with a a, a um, beer name that's catchy, a label that looks brilliant, uh, and in a format that's delivered to the consumer in a smart and appeasing way. I mean, I'm, I've been asking myself literally in the last couple of weeks uh, whether or not it's possible to um, to success to successfully uh, can mix culture beers. Um, I know there's there's been a few breweries in the states that have done it, um, and I've read up about that. So it's not to say that we're not going to do it at some stage in the future. Um, it's more a case of sitting on the shelf. What looks different? What it, what's what's currently not on offer? What can we what can we provide that um, that can set us apart? So similar to our beer offerings, it's um, it's the packaging that we that we've sort of chosen the three seventy five mini champagne bottles. Um, and yeah, it's probably they probably suit the style um, particularly well. And we we mentioned before that you've got your estate ales. There there'll be three of them eventually. You've got a, a new one coming out soon, and you've named them all after your three boys. Yeah, so yeah, so Max was a, a spring saison that we released in November last year. Um, Edward was a was a hoppy uh, farmhouse ale, which was also released in November. And then uh, sorry, Edward, and then Oscar. Um, he's going to be a, a farmhouse IPA, which will brew in the next couple of weeks. Fantastic! Do the, do the boys realise how cool it is to have their names on these beer bottles? Uh, they do at the moment, but I think it's probably for different reasons that they will when they start to get towards the age of eighteen. So <laughs> um, I, don't, I don't know whether I don't know whether the, the three seventy five mil bottle will be as cool in twelve to fifteen years' time as opposed to a a can or something, so we might have to look at, at what we have to do in in a few years' time. Uh, you mentioned before that when you when you do something at the brewery, you don't do things in halves. I think I remember I was up there one time and you and you showed me. Um, I think it was the hedgerow that had got accidentally infected by a small little fly getting in underneath the door sill, which meant you had to to dump that whole batch of one of your your favourite beers at the time. And and I know you said in the past you're not afraid to dump a batch and. I think that's a really noble thing that you you are just wanting to put out the absolute best uh, quality product as opposed to trying you know to cash in quickly. I suppose uh, we'll, we'll go through remedial process with anything that um, that goes wrong or, or doesn't quite hit the mark or what we're after. We'll, we'll certainly go through steps that we'll try and bring it back up to speed or or what we can do with it um, otherwise. But yeah, I mean if it's it's a matter of integrity, and I would hope that most brewers would do exactly the same thing. If, if something's not quite right, then um, it's it's almost pointless putting it out on the market uh, as opposed to, I mean, fortunately, that's arguably the best thing about beer is that if something goes wrong, we can uh, we can turn around and do something, recreate it uh, relatively quickly compared to a product like whiskey or wine where the time component is um, is so much greater. Speaking of not doing things in halves, are you still going on with your hop growing experiment where you're trying to sort of trick the hops into growing, I suppose, out of season? Now, you know that that was an April Fool's Day joke, don't you? I do know that, but I just thought I'd let you give you some air time just to see whether uh, you might. might uh... Uh, well, I look, I, I've had that idea for a little bit and I, I looked it up and uh, unbeknownst to me, there's a, crew in, um, there's a crew in the States that are actually doing it. Oh, they really are? Oh, okay. Yeah. I thought it was just so, all bullshit. <laughs> no, no, no. So they were genuine photos from a crew. I forget the name of them. Um, but, yeah, they're, they're genuinely growing hops out of season. Wow. Um, and I was um, I was speaking to someone from Sydney the other day who's, I think, hoping to do the same thing. So I said to them, good luck because um, 
yeah, the infrastructure costs in doing that would be wow. um, not small. And I reckon there's a small market there to, in order to a very small market to uh, to try and get, as opposed to a large one, just growing them normally. Yeah, yeah. Um, speaking of the globe, in recent times, you know, there's been a lot of criticism around the globe of people setting up these breweries in a certain way to kind of entice the big beer manufacturers of the world to, to buy them and hand over that cold, hard cash. Could you be doing it any different <laughs> to that? You basically make it – there's no way you could be bought out by a big brewery, could you? Uh, we've actually yeah, – we've, we've bucked the trend. Like We've actually reduced our annual production in the last uh, three years. So – um, that's probably across our core range stuff as we've started to focus a little more on these um, the, the barrel aging and, and mixed culture beers. But, yeah, our overall we've reduced our, our annual production. So, um, I mean, as I said before, it's a, I'm sure there are other people as equally as passionate about it as me, but um, when we set up on the family farm, it's, it's not an easy process to, to be ever looking to go and sell it um, in a hurry and it's not something that we ever – ever enticed uh, or ever ever hoped to be enticed to do. Um, and it's, I mean, everyone has their price. <laughs> it's not to say that we wouldn't, um, <laughs> we wouldn't, if, if an offer came to us that was too good to refuse, I don't think we would. But, I mean, I'm hoping to do this for another 30 years, 25, 30 years, and then maybe hand it over to one of the boys and go from there. And um, I, can t- I can tickle on on the farm while they're, they're brewing beers and doing whatever they're doing. Happy days. Um, I mentioned earlier that, you know, the industry really has changed a lot since you started Van Diemen. And you mentioned a few things around, you know, the number of people involved and breweries involved. Um, other than that, what are, what are some of the major changes, good or bad, that, you, that you've noticed in your time? Oh, you didn't tell me you were going to have hard-hitting questions hard like hitting, this. Hard-hitting. Look at this guy. Um, biggest, cha- biggest changes. I think more than anything, the um, the – Probably just the, um, the obviously the number of breweries that have that have come online, um, and and it's a broad array of them. It, it, as you said, it's guys that are that are looking to to build something up very quickly and and then sell off. Um, it's it's a lot of smaller guys. That are the, I mean the the brew pub component, and the the nano component is um, is pretty big at the moment. Um, I think the quality of beer has probably risen in those in those ten years, which is um, which is good to see. And I think in saying that, there's still room for improvement um, from just about everyone. Um, I think there's some fantastic beers being produced, but um, overall, I think the the, um, the quality of beer we can we can continue to push, and that will hold the industry in good stead. Um, uh, I think suppliers. Um, arguably, the, the the offerings that suppliers are offering um, have increased, and, and the ability to get ingredients um, from across the globe, um, whether it be hops, malt, yeast, yeah. um, has gone through the roof. Yeah, I think that um, whole so globalization that, trend that we've seen in everything has really affected craft beer, and I think sort of in a positive way, as you say, being able to get these different ingredients. But also for you guys and with the advent of the internet and everything, access to each other across the globe, you know, forging relationships with people that are in other countries and collaborating with brews and all that sort of thing is so awesome. Yeah, exactly. I think social media is probably – beer and social media or brewing and social media seem to go hand in hand together. I mean, beer is such a socially socially engaging 
um, product in itself. And then you have have something like a, a Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Snapchat, whatever it might be. Um, it tends to lend itself quite nicely. So I think breweries are most breweries are pretty smart at um, at how they operate in that um, game and and sort of one um, promote themselves and the, and their products, but also two. Um, the uh, the conversations and the relationships that they have with with fellow brewers and and brewery owners. I know myself. I mean, we've got um, we've got one of the Jester King guys coming to visit us tomorrow. So, oh, awesome! <laughs> which which we wouldn't which we wouldn't have been able to do um, outside of social media. Um, so it's one of those things that um, yeah, develop relationships that hopefully last for many years, and then hopefully the um, the favour is repaid and when I'm over in the States at some stage, we get along the Jester King and, and have a good look around. So uh, maybe at the next Gabs or something, there might be a Jester King Van Diemen collab beer sort of on the menu? Uh, I probably can't say yes or no at the moment, Loki. you have to wait and see. Oh, I think I might have just got an exclusive in my first podcast. How good's that? <laughs> Fantastic. I've just got a way of just getting into your mind and just trying to extract the good pieces of information. You keep telling yourself <laughs> that. Mate, if you, if you could start your craft beer journey all over again, what would you change? Uh, I would start immediately with the on-farm component. Yep. Um, if, if we were starting, are you talking we're starting now or am I starting 10 years ago or – Let's let's say now for for argument's sake. Yeah, no, I, I would I would work out very quickly what our niche was or, or what our what our difference um, is, and and would probably hit that farm component very quickly. Um, that's not to say that we would do it um, potentially as successfully or as as well as what we are, because we, I think that's one thing that um, is uh, is incredibly valuable is that ex- that time that we've had. Um, in order to set ourselves up for this. And um, as I said, things don't happen overnight. Experience is invaluable. Um, I learned that when I went to England and worked as a brewer over there and learned far more working in, working in the breweries than I could ever have done in front of a, a textbook or something, um, doing far more analytical stuff. Um, likewise, when we, when we look at us as a brewery, experience has taught us um, so much. So, yeah, I'd probably, I'd probably hit that farm component straight away um i'd probably look i probably would have i'd probably go straight into cans as well um i think they're just cans i love are, cans they just yeah they travel just, so well yeah i think they do for, for our target market and stuff not necessarily our beers for our target market cans are um are ideal um and i probably would have potentially had a yeah but Bit more of a thought about what our what our initial offerings were, and, and arguably we're just about to go through that, so we're about to yep. about to have a bit of a change on on what we're offering and, and what we're throwing out into the market. Um, basically, to answer the question that you um, that you've just asked, yeah, because I guess you started off with those so the English inspired ales, which was yeah, I mean that was, that was obvious. I was heavily. Heavily influenced after working in the UK, and and sort of that's that's where I um, sort of learnt everything. And um, to come back here and, and set it up for ourselves, it was um, there were there weren't a heap of people that we could turn to. Um, there are now, um, but as I said, the experience sort of now dictates that what we what we have to offer and, and what we what we think we should be offering and stuff. So, in reality, we're probably going to go through a little bit of a rebirth in the in the next six months or so. 
Uh, well, good luck with that, mate. Look, it's, it's an inspiring story. I've never had the guts to be able to jump in and, you know, start up a brewery of, me, of my own. I probably don't have the knowledge to either, but, you know, to, to do what you've done and see you come out the other end with, you know, really following your passion, it's, it's fantastic. So, but, mate, you don't get off that easily. Uh, in response to you know your suggestions to try something a little different on this podcast, I stole five of your uh, of your suggested questions, and I've wrapped them up yeah. into what I'm going to call Fast Five. How's that for Mark? So, good, mate, good. first up, has beer ever led you astray? Uh, yes, it has. Yes, it has. Are you after details? Or you can what? give me details. We've got ninety seconds. I forgot to say, but oh, ninety seconds got for the five. Yeah. Oh, no, the stories are too long for the beer led me astray. Yeah, the answer is yes. <laughs> Who's the most famous person you've ever shared a beer with? Uh, the English cricket team, Phil Tufnell, Jack Russell, uh, Mike Atherton, uh, Andy Caddick. Yeah, Fantastic. Uh, what's beer done for you that nothing else has? Uh, provided me with a, a lifestyle and um, workplace and... Um, friends that no other industry has. Fantastic. I think I might know the answer to this one. What's the best beer experience you've enjoyed? The best beer experience I've ever enjoyed? Oh, I don't know. What's your suggestion? I was going to say after you climbed the mountain and drank that poor beer. Oh, yeah. No, I wouldn't say that. The best, the best beer experience is probably when we made our first beer at the brewery and, and had that finished. And Beautiful. It probably tasted like crap, but it was <laughs> Who cares? the realisation of a goal. You made it with your, your own two hands. And and what's the biggest thing you think you've learnt in your journey? Uh, to, if you're going to do something, do something properly. Um, shortcuts will only get you so far and you'll be found out um, pretty quickly. So, yeah, if you're going to do something, do it properly. No. And, and don't hold back. That is, oh, look at that. Just finishing on the 90 seconds. That is great advice. And I'm going to put in the, the fast five plus one, just a little extra one for you. Um, yeah. Who do you think I should get onto the podcast at some stage and can you help me nail them? The one that I could, the one that I could think of that's quite serious or would be good is um, John Selton from Brick Lane Brewing. Oh, I actually met him at, at Sydney Gabs. Yeah, he's the head brewer there. He'd be he'd be he'd be pretty good to listen to about his journey from um, Bright uh, um, through to Hawkers through to Brick Lane Brewing. Um, Sounds good. Maybe you uh, can uh, put me in contact with him. And we- yeah. yep. Well, mate, look, thanks for uh, popping my podcast cherry tonight on Beer Healer Interviews. I really appreciate it, mate. Mate, it's been nice to see your um, your sound recordings go up and down <laughs> as your dulcet tones go through my ears. That's fantastic, mate. So, look, uh, until we talk again, wherever that is, mate, cheers to great farmhouse beers. Cheers, Loki. Thank you very yeah. much, mate. Happy to join you. Thanks for tuning in to the Beer Healer interviews. If you want to follow along with more Beer Healer content, you can check out my Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram pages. Just search Beer Healer or visit beerhealer.com. If you like the podcast, can you please help me spread the word by subscribing and rating it and sharing it with your beer-loving friends. Until next time, cheers to great beers.